I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. Gil Pinalosa is passionate about creating cities for all people by turning parks and streets into great public spaces and providing sustainable mobility. As executive director of the Canadian nonprofit organization 880 Cities, Gil has worked in more than 150 cities. He's the former commissioner of parks, sport, and recreation for the city of Bogota, Colombia. Gil, why do so many public spaces fail? Well, I think part of it is somehow the governments are not putting enough emphasis into it. And they don't realize that public spaces, part of the success is the design and the construction. But a major part of the success is the management. And by management, I don't mean just picking up the garbage and cutting the grass. I think that is only a small part of management. The key parts of management are the uses and the activities. Sometimes municipalities find the millions to build a park, and then they don't find the thousands to make it work. How to have someone uh, carving pumpkins during Halloween, how to do movie nights, uh, how to organize uh, aerobics, Zumba, and things. So I I think most fail because of lack of uh, investment on the uses and the activities. What are the characteristics of great public spaces? What do you look for? Well, some of the symptoms is when you go to any public place and then you see sociability, uh, nice places to sit. Uh, an indicator, for example, is to see a high proportion of women. Uh, women are more selective, so if they don't feel safe, if the place is not clean, usually they don't go. Also places where we see children and youth and older adults. Places that work uh, on weekdays, but also on weekends, that work also during the day and at night. Uh, So these are some of the symptoms. Gil, call me crazy, but I'm encouraged by the progress we're making in U.S. cities on walking, biking, and transit. Are you? Yes, in somehow. I'm also very optimistic. I think that many of these topics 20 years ago, we were not even talking about it. Now we are talking about it. I mean, the U.S. just did a fantastic uh, work in in, in the World Soccer Cup. So let me give you an analogy. I think we have learned how to pass the ball around. We got some good players and we got some good examples, but we the ball goes only up to the line. We need to know that if we don't kick it across the line, we don't score the goal. So the reality is that there are very, very few cities in the States, none of the big ones that even has 2% of the people cycling as a normal part of everyday life. We are still having over 80,000 people that are walking on the streets that are hit by cars. Uh, We got over 4,000 that are killed while walking. And somehow this is not a priority in most places. So while I'm optimistic that we're starting to see examples where some of the bikeways that Janet Sarikan was starting to build in New York, and now the new mayor is coming up to the vision zero and he doesn't, he wants to stop the killing of pedestrians and cyclists. There's lots of really good symptoms all over, but I think we need to make a bigger effort and we need to, to to raise the level of the priority. You've brought me down to earth now. <laughs> um, and you mentioned pedestrian deaths, which really is shocking in so many ways. The number of deaths is, is really startling. And I, I've seen you make an analogy to plane crashes. Make that analogy for us, because I do think it's compelling. It puts it in perspective. Around the world, according to the World Health Organization, over 270,000 people are killed while walking on the streets. 
that is the equivalent of four airplanes, like the Air Malaysia that everybody's so worried about that it got lost and so on. Well, it's four Air Malaysia planes every day of people walking. And it can be, you know, the people that are killed are young and old and rich and poor, men and women, and are everybody. So we, we cannot think that we live in a civilized world where walking is such a dangerous activity. And what is worse is that we know what needs to be done to make walking or to make cycling safe. For example, we need to, we know we need to lower the speeds below 20 miles an hour. Not just because 20 is plenty sounds nice, but because if a person gets hit by a car at 20 miles an hour, there is only 5% probability that that person will be killed. If the person is hit at 40 miles an hour, the probability of being killed raises to 85%. We know that in the crosswalks, the light for the pedestrians should go on five seconds before that of the car. So that when I'm in a car and I see a person on this street corner, I don't know if they're waiting for someone or they're gonna cross. But if they have a five second advantage, by the time that I start, I know that they are crossing. And if I'm making a right turn, they're very visible. So things like that, it's not about the money. It doesn't cost money to lower the speeds. It doesn't cost money to reprogram the lights so that they change. And we also have to become more aware that everybody's pedestrian. Every, every single trip begins and ends by walking. We walk to the cars, we walk to the bicycles, we walk to public transit, because somehow some people say, oh, I'm not a pedestrian, I'm a car driver. No, 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 the car, every single car ride also begins by walking. And also we need to know that this is also has other implications. For example, every single child and youth across North America, their only individual mode of mobility is walking or cycling. So we need to make walking and cycling a priority. We need to make it safe and enjoyable. Uh, we should make it almost like a right, unless people think that the only ones that have a right to individual mobility are those that have the age and the money and the desire to drive cars. You point out that there's progress in some cities, but progress is uneven. We're learning to, as you say, pass the ball, but we can't yet get it into the net. You travel to a lot of cities, you talk to a lot of public officials. What's the biggest roadblock to making our cities cities for all people? Well, I, I think that a major roadblock is change of mindset and also lack of sense of urgency. For example, the U.S. population, according to the U.S. Census, is going to grow by more than 100 million people in the next 40 years. So not only do we have to improve the communities that we have today, but we have to create great communities for that 100 million people. We gotta change our priorities. For example, I'll give you another example of New York that everybody talks about their wonderful park system. The reality is that the parks in New York that are getting a lot of funding from the private sector are as good as any park in the world, such as Central Park or Highland Park, Bryant Park. But in the last 25 years, New York has lowered the investment in public parks from, it used to be one and a half percent of their total budget. Now it's one third, it's only 0.5% of the budget. So all of a sudden we're starting to create like a two-tier park systems in the neighborhoods where the rich people live and where the rich people invest in their parks, then we have wonderful parks. And in the low-income neighborhoods where maybe we need them even more, we are having mediocre or very poor parks. Uh, so things like this is something that we need to change. Public transit, public transit has to become a top priority. 
in the U.S. we are investing, people are spending over between 25 and 30 percent. So one out of every four dollars of income, they're spending on mobility when there is based on a private car. So there is nothing that politicians could do that would have a higher impact on the quality of life of people than if the two car households could downsize to one car or the one car to no cars. It should be an option. If you want to have five cars, fine. But if you want to downsize, you should be able to because you have a great public transit and it's safe for walking and cycling. I mean, according to the American Automobile Association, cost per year for one car is around $9,000, including depreciation and insurance and so on. If all of a sudden this family, the two-car household, downsizes to one and they got $9,000 in their pocket, all of a the sudden they have more, they're going to have money for so many things, including uh, in better public health, including uh, education and clothing and savings for retirement. They will even be able to have dinner with their family. And also this is going to be great for the local economy because if people start to have more disposable income, what do they do? They go to their restaurants, they improve their gardens, they fix their house, and all of that money is going to stay in the local economy. So some of these decisions, I would say, is a lack of a shared vision of what kind of city that we need and the sense of urgency. I would say those are the two elements that would make things click, and we got to work on that shared vision of how do we want to live. You are taking a group of civic leaders from night cities to Copenhagen this summer to see the changes uh, that have occurred in that city. You just mentioned the local economy, the local economic benefits from downsizing to one car instead of two, for instance, and the $9,000 you can then spend on your family. One of the things that struck me most in Copenhagen was the boom in local small businesses that result when people are walking and biking versus in their cars. What are the other lessons that are in Copenhagen for North American cities? One of the things why I love Copenhagen is because it has similar weather, it has a hot summer, cold winter, uh, and actually it's worse than most cities because it, it rains all the time. But nevertheless, 38 out of 100 people use their bicycle as their mode of transportation. And a lot of people also walk. And this uh, improve, has so many improvements, not only about mobility, how to get from point A to point B, but also it has improvements on, on health. All of the, it's great for physical health, but also for mental health. It's also great for the environment because then the quality of the air is cleaner and also there is less noise. Uh, it's also great, like you were saying, for economic development. When people walk or people bike or people take public transit, well, how much stuff can they carry? People, you, you can carry only for two or three days, so you buy at a lot of local shops. When you're on a car, you can buy for two or three weeks, so people go to the big box stores. So these are some of the things that, that, that are changed. Uh, also, this makes a lot happier. So these are the elements that when people say, oh, you know, Copenhagen has been ranked as the happiest city in the world, whatever. Well, a lot of this, everything is really linked to everything. And, and I think that's why it's important. Also, because a city like Copenhagen, also in the 50s and 60s, the car was taking over, like everywhere in the world. Most of the changes around walking and cycling that has taken in Denmark and in the Netherlands and in Germany has been in the last 25 or 30 years. 
in all of those places, the car was also taking over. The first pedestrian street in Copenhagen was created about 30 years ago, and there was a huge conflict. There was a, a lot of problem because so, some of the retail people were very scared, and they were saying, you know, pedestrian, uh, you know, that, that, that is, we have too many cars, and our climate is horrible. But more than anything, they were saying, as they say in many U.S. cities, this, this is not part of our culture. But all of a sudden now, the Danish, that people think that they were cold and shy, now they use their public spaces as if they were Italians. They love their pedestrian streets. They love their parks. So I think this is a change of attitude. That's why I think it's so wonderful to bring city leaders. And in the group that is coming from the night cities, it's a wonderful combination of people, elected officials, public sector staff, NGOs, private sector, because at the end of the day, we need to create these broad alliances between all of them to make changes in the city. And what they're going to see is that a lot of it is not rocket science. And all of this that Denmark has done that makes their quality of life so good is doable in any city. So this is not just for the rich. This is not just for the big cities or just for the small ones. No, it can be done in the big and the small. But also the people coming will have very, very clear that is not about how to copy Copenhagen. Every city is unique. Every neighborhood, every street is unique. So we need to see and adapt and improve what others are doing. And then how to move forward. It's not about a copy and paste like we do on the computers, but it's, it's really adapting and improving. And that's what we're really looking forward to the trip to Copenhagen. If a city wants to increase walking and cycling, what's the best first move to make? If you want to improve walking, the most important thing is to lower the speed as well as cycle. Lower the speeds where people live. In the neighborhoods, it has to be 20 miles or less. And about walking, we got to make it safe. I see many of the streets that are very well lit at night and most of the sidewalks are very dark. The streets don't need lights because the cars already have lights. Why don't we turn those lights and, and, and put lights on the sidewalks? We need to make uh, the crosswalks safe for everybody. As for cycling, cycling, the cities do a lot of things that they look nice, but that they do not get new cyclists. The cities invest in new maps and they signage and they do uh, courses on how to bike and they paint lines on, the, on their streets and bicycle parking. All of those elements, that makes it nicer for the 2% that are already cycling, but doesn't get new cyclists. The only two things that really get new cyclists is one, to lower the speed in the neighborhood streets, and two, we need to create a grid of protected bikeways. We need to separate the, the people cycling from the cars with a physical separation to make sure that the cars won't go. And it's not just one, because some cities, they build one bikeway and they say, oh, let's see if it works. And when they don't see a lot of cyclists, they say, oh, you know, we don't have a bicycle culture. We build a bikeway and it didn't work. Well, if you don't bike on the streets because you think it's dangerous and now 30% of your trip is safe, but the other 70% is in the middle of the cars, you're not going to bike. That's why we, we think that cities should build a minimum grid, a grid that will connect places of origin to places of destination so that the whole ride will be a safe ride. So I would say that cities, instead of focusing on, on, on this uh, paint or signage or maps or things, focuses on building a minimum grid. And I would say the citizens also should advocate is for to have a minimum grid of protected bikeways in their city. Gil, you were a public official in Bogota and you deal with a lot of public officials worldwide. What is the most compelling argument 
for the changes in public space and sustainable mobility that you advocate. How do you sell this? The most important thing is to say, look, this is doable. And let's see many examples around the world that people are doing it. And we see how cities like Seoul, South Korea, that they had a major highway around eight miles through the middle of downtown Seoul that was an elevated highway and it was totally full of cars. They wanted a third level. And the mayor about eight years ago had the guts to take it down and actually create a linear park. And he knows that the only way to solve mobility is for public transit. So by showing examples that a lot of this is doable, every public official has to realize that the citizens are paying us every other week is to get things done, not to have 20 excuses why things cannot be done. Because it's very easy to have the excuses. And we see a lot of champions everywhere. Sometimes it's the mayor, sometimes it's a commissioner, sometimes it's a community leader. All of a sudden, people like Amanda Burden, the commissioner of planning in New York, and she did a wonderful partnership with citizens. The citizens had this elevated railroad through the middle of Manhattan where they used to carry chemicals. And But 20 years ago, they stopped using the railroad, the rail lines and they were going to tear it down. And some citizens and the Commissioner of Planning, Amanda Bird, they got around it and they built a fantastic linear park, the Highline Park. Uh, so all of these things, is they show that it's doable. The mayor of Chicago, all of a sudden, Rahm Emanuel comes to power. He sees roads that are dangerous to bike, uh, like Kenzie Street, uh, where there was most places there was nothing and whatever there was, they were just painted lines and actually on the wrong side because they painted on the left side of the parked cars. So the bicycles were protecting their cars and not the cars, the cyclists. And in 30 days, he built the first protected bikeway. All of these things, Carol, are not technical. They are not financial. They are political. So I would say that one of the things that really works with decision makers is to show that it's doable and that it's being done in many cities. I know that sometimes they are reluctant to be pioneers uh, because they, they think the pioneers get shot in the back. <laughs> but there's no need to be pioneers but because there is a lot of good examples around the world in North America as well as everywhere. When I was in, in Colombia, for example, in Bogota, obviously, we're so much more poorer. It was a, a city that had maybe one-third the per capita, uh, no, not one-third, I'm sorry, one-sixth the per capita income of the U.S., but nevertheless, in six years, we built over 800 neighborhood parks. We built five metropolitan parks, uh, over 300 kilometers, so like 200 miles of protected bikeways. So there are many cities that are doing a lot of interesting things. And what we need is we, we need to create a champions. I find that to move from talking to doing, we need five elements. The first one is a sense of urgency. This is for now, it's not in 20 or 30 years. Second, we need political will. The politicians must understand that the general interest must prevail. Change doesn't happen by consensus, it's the general interest. Third, we need doers in the public sector. Champions like Janet Sarikan, like Amanda Burton, like Rome Emanuel and so on. Fourth, we need leaders, but thousands of leaders. We need leaders in the schools, in the neighborhoods, in the business, uh, in the NGOs, in the activists. We need hundreds of leaders everywhere. And five, we need citizen participation. I think the citizens can no longer be spectators. They need to participate. They need to make their phone calls to the politicians. They need to write letters to the editor. They need to participate in political process. Uh, if they don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And that someone else is going to set the agenda. 
So I think that they need to be engaged. Gil, thanks so much for being our guest on Night Cities. Harold, thank you very much for having me. And I think that is wonderful, the work that you are doing and you are leading, because you are really helping develop that shared vision and that sense of urgency. And I think those two elements are the glue that will get the elected officials and the public sector staff and the private sector moving in, in the same direction and making change happen. And thanks for your leadership. Thank you. Gil Pinalosa is Executive Director of 880 Cities in Toronto. You've been listening to Night Cities, a production of the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.